You're listening to The Right Process, a podcast in which one writer tells the story of crafting one work from concept to completion. I'm your host, Charlie Jensen. Hi, I'm Tembi Locke, the author of From Scratch, and I'm also the co-creator of the series based on the same book. Tembi Locke is an actor, producer, screenwriter, and the New York Times bestselling author of the memoir, From Scratch. From Scratch is a Reese's Book Club pick, an Audi Awards Best Autobook finalist, and a Goodreads Best Books finalist. Along with Reese Witherspoon and Hello Sunshine, Tembi serves as an executive producer and co-writer for the Netflix limited series inspired by her book, From Scratch. Her hope is for her work to inspire people to love more deeply, embrace resilience, and honor the fundamental humanity that connects us all. From Scratch, a memoir of love, Sicily, and finding home is a poignant and transformative cross-cultural love story set against the lush backdrop of the Sicilian countryside. This is for anyone who has dared to reach for big love, fought for what mattered most, and needed a reminder that life is, after all, delicious. I have to say I had the idea, the possibility, that my life story could potentially have elements of a book. I sort of knew that intuitively for a while, mostly because I come to writing having been an actor. What that gives me is an understanding of dramatic moments (laughs) and also (laughs) scenes. I tend to see the world in the form of a scene. So I understood that I had these key scenes from my life that were pretty dramatic, you know, but I certainly didn't understand them in the context of a full narrative. I didn't understand the arc of them. What that meant is that when I actually did have the call to write a book, when I was like, oh no, this actually is a book, I can see it now, that moment came to me in the summer of 2016. (laughs) I was in Sicily, rural Sicily, a place that I write about in the book. It was sunset. We were all sitting outside on a street in a small town. You could hear, you know, the cicadas going. You could hear, like, the Vespas go by. It was total Sicilian tableau, right? And across the street was my mother-in-law, my Sicilian mother-in-law, who was in her 80s at the time, and my daughter, who was about 11 or so at the time. So here we were, three women on a small street in Sicily, My mother-in-law, who spoke no English and very little Italian, me, who speak no Sicilian and Italian, and my daughter, who speaks English, some Italian, no Sicilian. And somehow we'd managed to make a family. I said, this is it. This, oh, this is why you write the book, because I can answer, how did we get here? How did we form this unit? And that felt worthy enough. Answering that question felt worthy enough of sitting down and attempting to take all these disparate scenes of my life and string them together in a narrative, like to make them have an arc across some 300 pages. I kind of felt ignited to begin that quest. And I have to back up and say that I knew that the answer to the how of how we'd all become together was love and was my late husband, because he was the person who connected us, even though he was no longer with us physically and presence, but he was with us. (laughs) And I also wanted to answer that question. Like, is that a real thing? Like, how can that be? And how does love sustain? How does it inspire? How does it continue to evolve even after 
death. And that felt like a big enough question to sit down and <laughs> it's a bananas quest, right? To take up. And I was blessed to have people in my life. One, I had my sister who is an accomplished novelist and she's written five books. She's also an accomplished screenwriter. I, I had someone, you know, at arm's length, right? Who was doing this as a living, who had written five books. So I had at the periphery scene, kind of the nuts and bolts of how you like do that. So I was like, okay, well maybe I'll just copy what she does. <laughs> Somehow it'll just come together. <laughs> you know, well, didn't work that way. <laughs> I had to find my own path, right? Because she writes novels, I'm a memoirist, and memoir is a whole different ball of wax. But she was encouraging of me and she said, you have a book in you, you can do this. If you don't write this book, I'm never speaking to you again. <laughs> and so that was a call to action, right? Because, you know, I love my sister. And I, I knew she was being facetious, but I also understood the urgency. And I think that was a gift. The way she said that, it kind of ignited a sense of urgency. No, 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 I kind of have to do this. And I do think to write anything, a poem, a song, a screenplay, a book, there has to be some sort of fundamental sense of urgency, a call to do it. And so I had that. And then what I also had was all the years I had been studying for this moment and studying at UCLA and taking classes at UCLA through the extension program. And so I knew I also had the raw written material to do it because I'd been writing essays and prompts for a decade. And in some way, the two things just met up. I think prior to that moment, I thought they were separate thing. I thought like, oh, I have this loose desire that maybe there's something here, but I don't know. And then I had this whole other path where I'd been just writing, just hacking away and writing and writing and writing and writing with truly no form. I mean, I remember being in classes with people who really were like, I'm doing this, I'm writing this, or I'm doing that. And I was always felt like, oh my gosh, I wish I had that clarity. I simply don't. <laughs> you know, I just know I have to write this down right now. So when that moment in the Sicilian street <laughs> met up with my sister's call to action, met up with years of preparation, that's the moment I knew, okay, I can start this. I had no writing process. <laughs> and even if I did like to complete an assignment for a class, that same process would not work to complete a book length memoir. So I had to come up with a whole other process. And I surveyed the lay of the land and there were people who woke up at 5 a.m. and was like, I just write until I go to work. And I was like, well, that's never working for me because I cannot get up at 5 a.m. There were people who wrote late into the night. And I was like, damn it, that can't be me either because I like to go to sleep at night. And I was like, dear God, Tempe, you're never gonna get this book written. But I found that I had a sweet spot. I had a sweet spot energetically and a sweet spot creatively. And for me, that sweet spot felt between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. That was my sweet spot to sort of really go deep. My daughter would be off to school by then. I had done sufficient enough procrastinating in the form of laundry <laughs> that I was ready to actually start writing. And I knew I would have, you know, not a lot of interruptions. So it was like I'd had breakfast and I could sort of work through until I would have a lunch, like a little bit of a late lunch. And luckily my life as an actor allowed me that window because I do believe now fundamentally we have about four good hours in us <laughs> of true in a day. Like the idea of working for eight or nine hours like you would a day job, I couldn't do, right? I couldn't excavate, I couldn't pull and talk to them. The muse didn't want to talk to me for eight hours. The muse was like, sister, I can give you three, maybe four. 
<laughs> okay, so there we were. Once I found that sweet spot, I tried to orchestrate my day around that to the degree that I could. Now, some day 10 o'clock would come and I was like, well, what do I do? <laughs> you know, is it just like free writing? Do I just find a random prompt somewhere and get started? Like what happens now? Because it felt so large. My book, it has a foot in three different decades. It covers three languages in two countries with a host of characters. And I was like, how do I harness all of that? So for me, I began those early days. My process was about sitting down and saying, I need to make a timeline of just what happened. <laughs> like, what's the timeline? And I'm a fundamental believer for those of us who are memoirists that we need the timeline. I knew that in order to really be able to understand which events I would be using in my story, I had to just write them all out. And that was an exercise I learned in a class at UCLA. It was a timeline exercise. And then I overlaid that with something called a mountain and valley exercise, which for those who have you know studied might know what this is. I can quickly say what it is, which is just basically looking at the events of your life with the peaks and the valleys, right? So I would take those same timeline events and then I would assign them as a peak or a valley. And that visually, as a visual learner, gave me a kind of external illustration of the highs and low points of my life. So I knew that some days I could write to the low points and some days I could write to the high points. So it kind of like when I would get stuck, I'd go, hmm, do I feel up today? I'll write to a high point. Do I feel low today? Okay, I can write to a low point, right? As I'm still gathering all of this raw material. The other thing I had to do early on was for me, I needed a thematic chart. This is all before I'm like writing in earnest. I'm not churning out pages. I'm doing like the back end work of understanding my story. And the theme chart basically was like, what are the big sweeping themes of this book? Love, motherhood, adoption, grief, Italy, food, Sicily. And then I had going crosswise where in the timeline those themes were most prevalent. Opening of the book, falling in love, the origin story, boom. Okay, now I know that feels really good at the beginning, right? So I'm kind of mapping out my story in a visual way before I'm writing any word of prose because I needed to sort of have it all in front of me so that when I would get lost, <laughs> I had a guide to come back to. My sister has literally never done anything like this. She's like, oh my God, that sounds like so much work. What is happening? She's like, I just start writing. And when I get stuck, I go back and start over. I was like, yeah, that can't work for me. So there I was with my timeline, my mountain and valley exercise and my theme chart. And I felt like, alrighty now, <laughs> now I have to start actually beginning to write. And the next phase, I thought, well, I have all these writings from my classes, and I know that some of those could be the kernels or the beginnings of scenes or the beginnings of a chapter in the book. So then it became about looking back at the work I'd written and excavating out, pulling forward the elements that related to the themes on my theme chart. So, oh, this prompt in a class, you know what? That relates to the theme of grief. Pull that forward, put that in a grief file. 
Sometimes they'd be snippets of a story, a paragraph. Sometimes it'd be two or three pages of writing. So that became my like core tool chest, if you will, toolbox that I could, when I would get lost, I could come back to that file cabinet of stories, of pieces, of fragments, and I could build around them. You know, I'd set myself up <laughs> well enough that I was like, okay, now you just got to write because you could do this organizing business <laughs> until your book is due and you don't have a book. So, okay, let's not also waste time and go down the rabbit hole of continuing to perfect these sort of tools, which is a form of procrastination, right? So I had to sort of always check in with myself to say, am I actually advancing the goal or am I hiding behind these processes and avoiding the writing? And that was always an internal conversation I was having with myself. And I was terrified, you know, because I didn't know what I was doing. I'd never done this before. And also my editor, and I will speak on this a little bit because I think a lot of young writers want to know about this. So when I got the book deal, the book was not written. I submitted it on proposal, which had basically like, I knew the book would have three different sections in it. I knew it would have recipes. And I gave them a snippet of what I thought would be the prologue of the book. So that was really all I had to work from. And then my beautiful editor said, well, you can work however you want to work. And I was like, great. And she said, that means you can give me pages regularly, weekly, monthly. You can check in when you have whole chapters or sections, or you can just wait and give me the book at the end when you're all done. So as a first time writer, that was terrifying because I was like, what? I didn't know how I wanted to work. I didn't know what would serve me the most, right? I settled on the idea of simply giving her one whole manuscript at the due date because somewhere in my intuition, I knew if I just start giving her pieces here and there, because my story is a mosaic story, I felt as though I'd be getting feedback on things that I knew I was going to resolve later on in the narrative. And I didn't want to waste time getting too mired down in the details of any. So I thought, you know what? I'm just going to go for broke and trust myself that I will have a full completed manuscript to give her at the due date. It just became about writing. And so every day, and when I say every day, what I mean by every day I wrote, I don't mean every day I actually wrote. <laughs> ah, there's the trick, right? So what I mean is that each day I knew I had to, and I'm borrowing language from my sister who may be borrowing it for someone else, but she said, every day you have to touch your narrative. I said, what does that mean? And she said, every day you have to be engaged with your narrative. And some days that means rereading work you've done before and you're actually not writing that day. Some days it might be doing a little bit of research. Some days it is writing, you know, but you may only get 25 minutes of writing in and the rest is your thinking time. Some days it's four hours of writing. I had to get very familiar with the ebbs and flows of that and not try to assign a singular way it had to look each day. That was probably the biggest learning curve I had in the process, right? Because I felt like I would beat myself up if I didn't write for more than 30 minutes that day. I was like, what the hell am I doing? I'm never going to get there, you know? Ah, but I couldn't beat myself up into a story. I could not browbeat myself along the path of excavating the deepest parts of who I am and, and revealing my soul on the page. I had to sort of practice a kind of internal self-care along the way and have a lot of trust 
And I realized the Pomodoro method when I would feel like I'm scrambling. I don't know if I've gotten enough. I would do the Pomodoro method. And so I love the Pomodoro method because for those who don't know, it is the best simplest way for someone like me to sort of get in there because you set a kitchen timer, you do it for 20 minutes, you don't take your fingers off the keyboard or your, you know, don't put your pen down and you just free write for 20 minutes. Sometimes I would get two Pomodoro installments <laughs> in a day. So that's 40 minutes of writing, but it would be deep concentrated writing. And so when you do that repeatedly over time, you're able to go in quickly and you're able to get great results and come out and go in and come out. And that worked for me. I would do a couple of Pomodoros at my desk. Sometimes I would go sit outside in the garden, particularly for the scenes that evoked nature. So I'm very much a sensory person. The book is very sensual. I need to engage all of my senses in order to bring that to the page. So I knew like if I'm going to be writing about the times when I'm on the streets or taking a run or a walk in rural Sicily, I needed to take myself back there in my mind's eye. And somehow I couldn't do it sitting at my desk. So I would put myself outside to write that. And somehow the feel of the sun on my skin would either prompt a memory or I would try to use the sensation of the sun on my skin to write about the sun on my skin <laughs> or the feel of the grass beneath my feet. So I kind of, you know, was helping myself along in that way. There were times when I had to do the Pomodoro method <laughs> in my car and a parking lot while my daughter was like having, you know, a gymnastics class or some after school activity because that was the only 20 minutes I got that day because I was also still had a job, you know, I was a single mom and had a job as an actor. So I'm auditioning, I'm going, you know, it was, it was a lot happening. I share that because I think we all have to give ourselves grace as we do this process to know that even if you sit for 20 minutes, which I did many times, and just listen to music from the era of the book of the timeline that you're writing from, that's actually work. Don't discount that as not work. It is work and it's working deep in your psyche and it will manifest. It will come forward. Another trick I have is when I'm stuck, I keep a shelf of just poetry. I love poetry. And when I'm stuck, I literally go in, hand over my eyes. I just pick random book, open to random page. And the agreement I have with myself is whatever's written on that page, I use that as a prompt. And that popped open so much. For me, that was like a very freeing thing. So a lot of what I did was I built in fail safes for me as a new writer so that along the way, I had enough things I couldn't trip myself up too much and just go off the rails. And that was helpful. And then I had accountability. I had someone who was actually teaches at UCLA Accenture named Shauna Keeney. And Shauna was the person who I would check in with. She was the person who was like, you know, give me another 10 setups. Where are you today? I need more, you know, like give me more. And just having that external person and it would, some people use their editor for that, right? But I didn't want my editor for that. I felt bashful. I felt quite frankly, as a new writer, that I was lucky to have a book contract. And I was like, you know what? My grandma taught me, you're going to go out in the world, have your clean socks and underwear on, <laughs> you know? And I was like, I am going to have my clean socks and underwear on when I bring my manuscript to my editor. I'm not going to like bring all the messy, messy because somewhere in my mind, I really thought they might be like, oh, you know what? Maybe we made a mistake on this one. Maybe we shouldn't have given her a deal. So I wasn't ready to be vulnerable in that way with my editor. That's me 
Other writers do it all the time, but that's me. And I think it helped me that I listened to that voice inside myself and I honored that because it gave me the freedom to be messy without the idea of someone looking over me at that moment, right? And I just needed that. The other thing I will definitely say that was very critical for me is that I can't, <laughs> this may sound strange, I cannot write and edit in the same space. So I will write in one area and then I close it up, put it away, maybe print out my pages, come back to it the next day, but in a different setting. And that's literally just me tricking my psyche between where's my creative brain that's just my brain that just is the free writing, who has access, who is unfiltered, has no editor in her life. She is just doing what she loves to do. And then who is the editorial Tembi who has to come in and address some of the things that the free writing Tembi came up with. Lastly, to get to the final finish line, I had to take a couple of weekends that I did intensive, go deep into the story and just say, okay, shut out the whole world. I need 48 hours to like sleep, eat, <laughs> dream this story. And that I say is because the nature of the work, which is writing about loss and death and these moments that I had to put a kind of tenderness and a safety around in order to be able to access, I sometimes couldn't do those in my home with my daughter here and the dog barking and the mailman coming and all the things. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to check into a hotel, light a candle, bring some rituals that make me feel safe. And I'm going to now go into writing about when I'm at my husband's bedside, when he passes away. I couldn't do that on the fly, you know, and then go pick up with dry cleaning. I share that as an offering to know that if you are writing about a traumatic event or you are reviewing some deep unresolved things, give yourself some space and a buffer and some grace around it because you're doing a mammoth thing. You've gone into, you know, you're the canary in the coal mine, but you're coming out to tell people what that whole experience was like. And if you got to go back in the coal mine, you need to know that you're doing it in a safe way. I began a book proposal mainly because there was a book proposal class <laughs> offered. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay. That sounds like a good idea. When I read the synopsis of the course, which was basically, it felt to me at first blush that it was about sort of organizing your ideas, sort of for yourself, proposing to yourself, trying on the idea, if I were to write a book, if I were, what might it look like? What, what might it be called? How might it begin? Where might it end? And it, was, it felt like a playful space to sort of try on the idea of a book in the form of this proposal class, right? And I also knew that people sold fiction by having a completed manuscript. But people often sold nonfiction through a proposal. Okay, let me try this idea of writing a proposal. Then I got into it and I thought, a proposal, sure, you can do that. That shouldn't be too hard. <laughs> you should be able to do that in like six weeks. Nope, you know. Well, three years later, <laughs> And what I mean by that is if I took that one course and I do think out of that course, I came out of it with an understanding that my book would be divided in like a three act structure. I also knew that it would begin 
in Florence and that it would end in Sicily. That's kind of all I knew. And I knew the themes. It would have grief. It would have love. It would have food. And I kept in the proposal, I kept saying, I think there's recipes. I think there's not recipes. The other thing about the proposal was it asked of me to consider who my audience would be. It asked me to consider how I would position myself as a new author, like who would I reach out to, who were my quote unquote marketing allies, if you will, things I never thought of before, but this proposal asks you to think of these things. And so it was a lot like trying on the idea of being a professional writer and being a published author. That for me was an invaluable exercise. And that first course, I didn't come out of it with a pitch perfect proposal but I came out of it with enough elements that furthered the idea that maybe this was a possibility. Then I continued to tinker with it in different workshops so that by the time, you know, I shared with you earlier the idea of that moment when I was sitting in 2016 in Sicily and I got the idea to write the book. Well, when I came back home, I was like, well, how do you do this? <laughs> Great, now you're gonna write it, but what do you, where do you begin? And so I pulled out that early book proposal I had written and I thought, well, I feel like this is incomplete. Maybe I'll write an essay to go with it. So I worked on an essay. Uh, it was about a 1500 word essay. It's kind of long. And I still was very tentative and nervous about the whole thing. And so I shared the essay with my sister and I said, what do you think of this essay? And she said, I think it's actually really Great. She said, would you mind me sharing it with people in my literary circle? Maybe they know someone who might want to help take this on and shepherd it. And I didn't know how generous the literary community could be. Coming from Hollywood, <laughs> where it's like, you know, let me step over you to get that part. I was like, wait, people would just read other people's stuff. I was like, oh, sure. So I gave her permission to share it. She did. One person who read it said, I see there's more here. Does this person have a book proposal? And I said, well, actually I do. <laughs> and I pulled out that, you know, incomplete sort of, you know, unpolished book proposal and I sent it forward with good faith and I lit a candle and I was like, well, we'll see what happens. And he said, okay, yeah, I can work with this. Let's, let's dig in. From that, we spent another six weeks and I literally, I kind of just shut myself off for a week and he gave me some examples of proposals he liked. So he, the he, I should back up and say, the he is a literary manager who is now my literary manager. He was like, we can definitely sell this between the essay and this proposal, but the proposal needs this and it needs this. And he gave me a long list of where it needed to be enhanced, where it needed to be pared back, what elements weren't in it that needed to be in it, what was extraneous. I was like, oh my gosh, if it's this hard to write a proposal, what the hell is it going to be like to write the book? But we did it together. I was ready to send it out. And I got that call from him that said, you know, I was thinking about your proposal. And I think there's one thing that's missing. And I was like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, I have spent so much time on this thing. He said, yeah, there's something that I know publishers are going to ask. And I think you're skirting around it in your proposal. And I think you need to meet it head on. And I thought, oh goodness, what is he talking about? And sure enough, it was about the theme, going back to my theme chart, of interracial and intercultural marriages and unions. In my proposal, I hinted at it in like a sentence and then I moved on. He said, 
when people read this, they're going to want to know more. They're going to want to know, wait, what? Huh? And he said, so unpack that more. Tell us what you mean. And I think my fear at the time was, and this is not uncommon for memoirs, I wasn't sure how I was going to write about the conflict I'd had with my in-laws and the fact that they had rejected me and they had not come to my wedding. I wasn't sure yet how I would write about them because I still had some unresolved feelings. So I kind of made a quick sentence in my proposal and I moved on. <laughs> but he knew, and he was absolutely right, that one sentence would not suffice. I went back in and I think I expanded into a full paragraph. And one of the things that I was very clear in telegraphing was that this was not going to be a book about the ways in which race or prejudice vilifies a family member. Said differently, <laughs> this was our starting point, but it was not our end point. And that the book then becomes about the evolution of these characters, including me because I had my own <laughs> preconceived notions about them as well, and that it would take that journey because I didn't want to sell it as like, and I love Spike Lee, but I didn't want to sell it as like a, this is a do the right thing, <laughs> you know, book. You know, this is not a book about like my racist Italian in-laws. That is not what this book is about. And so that was the one thing about the proposal that I didn't expect to come forward in the way that it did, but I was actually really glad it did because when it came time to be actually begin writing in earnest those passages in the book, I was very clear of where I was headed so that then I could say all the yucky, 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 uncomfortable stuff that happened because I knew where we were going to end. I was not setting out to write the book as a takedown of my in-laws. And by the way, I would say, if you think you're writing a memoir because you want to settle a score, or if you think you're writing a memoir because you do want to, you know, let the world know how categorically awful those people are, that is not enough. <laughs> to, that is not a compelling reason to write a book. It's a compelling reason to go to therapy. It is a compelling reason to perhaps have deeper conversation, but that will not net you a book-length memoir. Because ultimately, the work of the memoirist is to turn this to, to sort of put those feelings on the table, sure, but then look inward and say, what was your part in it? What did you do about it? How did you feel about it? What did it bring forth in you? Because you can really only be responsible for your character on the page. You know, however I write about my in-laws or anyone else in the book, including my daughter, my late husband, my mom, my dad, my sister, they are not in contract to be in my book. I mean, I actually asked my family if they could, but many memoirs don't ask their family or they don't talk to people and let them know. And you can disguise them in many ways. There's many ways to address that. But I knew that for me to write about others, I was creating, in some ways, a living document of who they were as people. Therefore, for me, because I still want to be... <laughs> in a relationship with them, and I still care and love for them, I was very careful in how I wrote about them, but also honest from my perspective. Again, memoir is all subjective. If anyone else that's mentioned in my book wrote their version of the story, it would look different. And that's what memoir is. And so that is a long way of saying that that final question that my literary manager asked me to write in my proposal really propelled the narrative forward. And quite frankly, when I got on the phone with the publishers, 
who had read the proposal and wanted to talk to me to see if they wanted to go further in the process, they all asked about that one theme. So I had to be prepared to talk about it. And I was glad that I had done that work on my own before I was just on a phone call and on the fly having to be like, ah, you know. Anyway, that's a little bit of of, of the proposal process. When I delivered my manuscript, I delivered it on time. That was a big thing for me that I wanted to deliver it on time as a first time writer. I wasn't going to ask for an extension. I was just like, I can't, I can't. I felt it was just a miracle that I even had a book deal. I wasn't going to ask for an extension. That's not to say that you can't because you can. I just didn't want to. And so when I gave it to my publisher, my editor, it was 100 pages too long. (laughs) It was overwritten. I gave her everything and the kitchen sink. And I sent a lovely note. And here's what I will say to aspiring writers out there. When you submit your manuscript to your editor, send it with the most loving, cheerleading note you can ever write. I mean, it is like, I am so excited to give you this. It has been a dream to write this. The things I discovered along the way, cheerlead (laughs) your own manuscript. You have just taken a year of your friggin' life to write this down. Don't be like, well, here's my manuscript. It's probably terrible. It's a little too long. It's, I was like, yes, I've given you more than what you wanted. I've given you everything in the kitchen sink. And I look forward to discovering together how we are going to pair this back. It took me a day to write that cheerleading letter because I did not feel that way inside. Trust me, I was shaking in my boots like, she's going to hate this. This is a hot mess. Because I, it, it was, it was a hot mess. It had all the potentiality. It fulfilled the book proposal, but it needed work. It was a first, not draft, because I had like 12 drafts, but it was the first draft I was willing to share outward. I think it took about three weeks to a month to get notes back, which by the way, when that happens, take those three weeks to one month, go on vacation, (laughs) go to dinner with friends, do everything you haven't done for the year you've been writing the book, celebrate that you've given it over because when those notes come back to you, you are going to have to dig in (laughs) and it starts all over again. So celebrate. I got two things. I got an email with uh, a Word doc attached that was 12 pages, single spaced of notes. I'm gonna say that again. 12 pages, single spaced of notes, okay? And then on top of that, a day later or so, a FedEx package arrived on my front doorstep, which was my physical manuscript printed out, redlined, top to bottom. So now I had two pieces of evidence (laughs) that told me my book needed a lot of work. I had a 12 page Word doc and I had a full printed out manuscript full of red lines, not redlined as in (laughs) the politics of redlining. (laughs) Although maybe it felt that way, I don't know. Um, Anyway, then there was setting the phone call to talk with my editor to talk about next steps. So I took a beat to digest the 12 pages. And when I say I took a beat, I basically cried. I cried, I grieved, I thought, I can't do this. I literally don't know what she's saying. I don't know how to restructure this. How do I go back in? I kind of, some voice inside of me wanted to call it a day. 
Like I wanted to say, mm, maybe, maybe this was the exercise. Maybe I was just supposed to get this far and just stop right here because I can't engage. I don't even know what to do. Well, I got over that feeling. I set the call with her. We talked and I said, I need to do a lot of listening. Talk to me. And I had highlighted a couple of points in her notes that I needed clarity. I said, can you clarify this, that, but I really just wanted to listen. I asked her if I could record our conversation because I didn't trust that I would remember what she said. And so we had a lovely conversation. It was about 20 minutes long. She said, how much time do you need? I said, well, what's the timeline? She was like, well, if you could get it back to me in like four weeks, five weeks. I was like, huh? Lee <laughs> got off that call and realized I have six weeks to fix this. And now I need a new timeline and I need a new schedule because the schedule that got me to the manuscript is not the same schedule that's gonna help me restructure this in six weeks. So it was a different pacing and a different approach. And I kind of cleared my calendar in such a way that this was all I did because I wanted to meet that delivery date because if I didn't, they were gonna push the publishing date. And I didn't want that to happen. So I followed the teaching of Annie Lamott, bird by bird, bit by bit, sentence by sentence. And the one thing that came out of the conversation, which actually was buried in her notes and it was buried inside of the pages that had the red lines on them, <laughs> was this idea of restructuring a central part of the narrative. And it was only in talking to her that something clicked. And I was like, ah, that, oh, I can do that. So I had the gift of feeling confident about the one thing I could do. <laughs> and I was like, okay, then I'm going to lean into that. That's the one thing I feel like I really am capable of doing. And then I have to trust that the rest is going to fall into place because you can't quite see the whole yet until you start with the individual parts. I really began reshuffling and reimagining. Something felt freeing about it because I knew that there were enough pieces that worked. And so there were guardrails. And it wasn't quite like starting all anew, but it was shifting my brain in a different way. And then when I began to do it, it started to fall into place. And by that second week, it started to click. And I was like, oh, it was like a new person was emerging, like a new entity was emerging. Oh, I like this. And I gained steam. And at the end of the six weeks, I gave it back to her. She said, this is great. I've got a few minor things in like chapter two and chapter four. And I was like, perfect. She goes, but I'm gonna send it off to copy editing. And she did. The copy editing process was, I, <laughs> I say this very lovingly. Oh dear Lord. Uh, the copy editing process broke me. It broke my brain. My brain was not prepared for what copy edits were. I was like, first of all, you get the edits from the copy editor and you're like, maybe I don't speak English. Maybe I actually never passed the third grade. I don't know because copy editing is a very humbling experience. It's a very humbling experience, but you're sitting with your narrative in a whole new way and in a different way. And I got through that. And then the book begins to make its way into the world. Once the book was out in the world, there were beginning conversations about interest in adapting it for screen. We weren't sure, would it be a film? Would it be a series? And again, the generosity of the writer's community. I had a friend who is actually a television screenwriter who said, you know, you wrote the book. You should be a part of adapting the series. And I think I needed someone, an external voice 
to offer that notion up before I felt brave enough to say, I actually want to be a part of this. And I knew internally that there were things I could offer the process, even as a untested, unproven screenwriter, there were things I could inherently bring to the adaptation that no one else could bring. My lived experience, my understanding of all of the what I call ancillary stories around the central story that would make ripe scenes in television and in a series. So it was agreed it would be a series. We were partnered with Hello Sunshine, which is Reese Witherspoon's company. My beloved sister, who I've mentioned before, who is an Emmy-nominated screenwriter herself, was going to come on as the showrunner. So we were doing this in partnership, and we would co-create the pilot. We would write it together as sisters. We then assembled a group of writers, five other brilliant minds, television writers, to sort of take the book and break it out into, at that time, 10 episodes of television for Netflix. That was a beautiful process. And the key in adaptation is a kind of understanding of where you are going to allocate your resources, meaning here's the source material. Everything that's in the source material cannot be in this new medium. This new medium will have to have other stories. And so Attica and I were very clear about what we wanted to hold true from the book and then what we wanted the license and freedom to explore and fictionalize. And so by bringing in five additional writers, each of whom brought aspects of their own lived experience to the series, we were able to create this 10-episode arc. Themes of immigration, which is touched on in the book, but is fully rendered in the series. We had a writer who could write about that. We had writers who could write about grief. That was me. We had writers who could write about food, caregiving, motherhood, the art world. And what was freeing to me was having that beautiful brain trust to sort of lift, expand, and transform the story for a whole new medium and audience. And our goal was that for people who have read the book, we wanted the series to give them something that was not in the book. And for people who watch the series, we want them to go, oh my gosh, what is this book? And are curious enough to go back and read the book. Writing process was lovely and being a first-time screenwriter. <laughs> so here I was first-time author. Now I'm in a new position of being a first-time screenwriter. I sat at the table at the time we were in person in our writer's room. You become one mind, and I had never experienced that in a writing context. I'd felt it a little bit on, you know, obviously as an actor when you're in a scene and it becomes about this sort of unified experience, but it is a beautiful process. The writer's room is a kind of exciting, dynamic space where the best idea wins. And I don't mean best in terms of winning and it prevails, but it's like you all just kind of go, ah, oh, yeah, that one. Ah, oh, that. You're spitballing and it has this kind of beautiful energy to it. We had created a very loving and trusting room of writers because we knew we were going to be going into deep spaces and places emotionally. So I feel very gifted to be a part of it. And I wrote three episodes of the series and, you know, on set producing all of them and then rewriting them again in the post-production edit bay. <laughs> the one thing that I've learned in the last four years between writing the book and then adapting it for series is one process is very singular and interior. As an artist, it is your soul excavated of who you are and what moves you and what inspires you. And then, interestingly, when I had the opportunity to be in the writer's room and then for the adaptation, it becomes about this beautiful collaborative process, right? 
They're very different. What is the same about them is the commitment to the narrative and the ways in which, you know, I talked about in writing the book, I would go to poetry to get inspiration, right? So I'd go to the words of another writer to get inspired. Well, in a writer's room, you're kind of doing that, but in real time, <laughs> because your other writers are there and they, you know, pitch an idea or will share a story that sparks an idea. I think as writers, the one thing I've learned now is that there's a time and place for both of those things. There's a time and space. I think if you're a screenwriter, there's value in finding something that is singularly yours to do. And I think if you are a novelist or a, a memoirist, I think there is a way in which you need community. So finding a writer's workshop or a writer's group or someone that you trust, it's that balance of both things. And I've just had the direct lived experience of you know, how that played out for myself in the form of a book, but then also inside of a Hollywood television writer's room. I will say that my background as an actor has served me well as a writer, period. One of the things that I knew writing the book, I can write a scene. I understand a beginning, middle of an end scene. I understand motivation. I understand dialogue, right? So I love writing dialogue in scenes, right? And then sometimes I just like, I'm just gonna write a dialogue scene like I would if it were gonna be, you know, in a film, right? Because it's, it's something I've, I've been reading scripts my whole professional life. So it helped me in the writing of the book. And then of course it helps me in the writer's room as we are creating scenes. And I'm like, no guys, that line of dialogue, uh-uh, no one can play that. That's a great, you think that's a great line, <laughs> but you can't quite, like my actor knew how to begin a scene. Like what's the most economical way to start a scene that sort of gets to the heart of the matter. So I was very good at the dialogue. Sometimes I wasn't good at transitions. I didn't understand sort of inherently, especially in those early days in the writer's room, sort of like, what the five act structure would need to be, but I could, you know, completely understand, drive moment before, what does this scene need for each actor? When we got to set, and now the words that I wrote in a book and then wrote on a script, and now are being played by actors and I'm the producer, watching the scene played out as directed by a director, I'm like, oh my God, this is a whole other place to be. Well, the gift I will say in that is suddenly I understood my industry and storytelling in a whole new way because I have spent 25 years being the actor who showed up with the five pages of dialogue that I have to do that day. Sometimes in the world of television, not even knowing the script before or the script that comes after or what happened to the other characters in the scene. I don't have the benefit of any of that information and I have to show up, render the scene, fulfill it, fulfill the character. And it is, I understand the work that, of actors, it's truly creating magic <laughs> insofar as actors have the least amount of information as anyone else on the set. And yet they are the people in front of the camera. And that to me is a fundamental, I would say flaw in the system, <laughs> quite frankly. But it also means that they also have the greatest vulnerability and trust on the set because they, no one wants to look bad. Everyone wants to sort of know what's happening. So I often on set would say, hmm, the scene we wrote worked beautifully on the page. The network loved it. But now that I'm seeing it on its feet, I could see when an actor might bump 
on a certain beat. And I was like, let's just lift that. No one else who was sitting at Video Village had spent 25 years in front of the camera. So I could sort of say, yeah, maybe the scene needs X. I wouldn't talk to the actors directly about it, but I might say, hey, to the director, I think if we do X, and the director would go in and go, okay, let's try it. And boom, you know, it would work. That I felt was a gift that I didn't know I would find as a producer. And I loved doing it. I saw how malleable story can be, how an actor might come in and, you know, where we had emphasis in our intention as writers, the actor would come in and hit this one word that would change the tonality of the scene and it would open up something new. And suddenly we would see the scene fresh. I remember that excitement as an actor, and then I was watching it as a producer and how it lifts the material. You know, I cannot say how collaborative the process is. I think that's the thing I would come back to and how ideas are constantly reshaped. Yes, you write them. Yes, they get approved by the network. And then you get on set and they're going to be reshaped between the actor and the director. The camera, the camera movements will reshape the scene what the camera is landing on or not landing on tells you what to pay attention to as an audience member, right? Then later in post, the music's gonna come in, the editor's gonna reshape it yet again. And so what you have in the end is this sort of piece of found art that's intentional art that is, you know, deeply collaborative. All I, as co-creator, and as the person who's sort of watching it go from page all the way through to post is making sure that, that intention stays clear. Because in episodic television, that's the job of the creator and of the showrunner is to sort of always make sure that that intention is always there because the other pieces are gonna change. It's gonna be greater than the sum of its parts. The one thing I would like to say is we hear as writers, write what you know. Clearly, I'm a memoirist, <laughs> so I do write what I know, but I also write what I want to know and what I want to know more about. Because if we're just writing what we know, okay, it, 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 there's value. Absolutely, there's value there. But if we also layer that with what do I want to know more about? What don't I understand that I need to unpack here? That then, to me, takes what we know and elevates it. It puts it in a different space. It becomes a kind of conversation we're having with our reader or our viewer about an essential question, right? Or a, a sort of unresolved thing we're solving for that we need to sort of wrap our minds around. And that, to me, is what makes story engaging. What don't I know? I knew a lot about my mother-in-law and her life. And I could write about what I knew about her. But there was so much about her I didn't know. And I asked myself, what do I want to find out about this woman that I don't know? And that is the kind of curiosity that I think lifts us as writers. It inspires us. And it's something I learned really in approaching acting. You know, I had, it's one of the things I said, okay, here's what they're telling me the character's all about, but what are, are they not telling me? <laughs> what don't I know about this character? Because if I bring that to the performance, that lifts the performance. I share those parallels to understand that make that distinction between doing something that is good and safe and functions and doing the thing that's elevated. And I think if we attempt to do the elevated thing, we all benefit from it. 
And now, a reading from From Scratch. The sounds of late summer crickets, cicadas, and the scurrying of lizards taking refuge in the setting Sicilian sun surrounded me. The air was thick with intoxicating scents of eucalyptus, burning wood, and ripening tomatoes. In the distance, the town church bell struck, calling people to afternoon mass. For a moment, I imagined my seven-year-old daughter running barefoot on the cobblestone street. She was the other reason I had cast myself on Sicilian shores, the only way I knew to keep her dad alive in her memory. I pulled the car over at the top of a steep hill, put it into neutral, and double-checked the brake. Then I pried the box containing my husband's remains from between my thighs, sticky with sweat. It left a design of vertical lines on his favorite spot in my flesh. The time had come, yet I couldn't bring myself to get out of the car. Sado, a chef, had always said he married an American, an African-American woman, who had the culinary soul of an Italian. In his mind, I was Italian the way all people should be Italian, at the table, which to him meant appreciating fresh food, foraging memories and traditions while passing the bread and imbibing local wine. It was a life that I had stumbled into by chance when we literally collided underneath the awning of the best gelateria in all of Italy. Luck. Fate. One look and I could see he had the kind of deep brown eyes that carried stories and that would entice me to tell mine. His profile could have been lifted from an ancient Roman coin and his configuration of features, olive skin, firm jawline, head of wavy charcoal black hair, conjured a vision of me entangling my body with his that came to me like a crack of lightning on a clear day. Oh, I said, mi scusi, in my best college Italian. He said, hello, back to me without a moment's hesitation. And right then, the fire met the pan. I could see now that Sato had appeared in my life and almost instantly created form where there had only been space. He soothed the places I hadn't known needed soothing, seemed perfectly willing to embrace the parts of me that were wanton, unsettled, unfinished, and contradictory. Together, we had engaged life as two forks eating off one plate, ready to listen, to love, to look into the darkness and see a thin filament of moon. The Right Process is hosted and curated by me, Charlie Jensen. This season was produced by Jamie Moss. The Writers Program offers courses, certificates, and services that help writers achieve their writing goals one page at a time. For more information, visit writers.uclaextension.edu.